open your Bible to the fifth book of the Old Testament. Now, a careful study of Deuteronomy may not exactly fit your felt needs, but I challenge you to abandon the packaged sound bites and force your ears to listen and your mind to think. Dave Wardson, our study leader, wants us to get at the very heart of where our moral decisions come from. So let's join Dave as he introduces our study of Deuteronomy by placing us right in the thick of the present culture wars. Is it right to have a baby outside the bounds of a monogamous marriage where there's a man and there's a woman who have gone public about their commitment together? Our culture debates about that. Our whole culture is racked in pain over a divisive viewpoint. One person saying, I have the right. If I can support a child, if I want a child, if that's what I believe that will make me fulfilled in life, then who has the right to tell me that I'm wrong? And the debate rages. Homosexuals all over the country, tremendous rising up of saying that as you look across the population of a society, there are males and there are females, and then there is something different, something that's just as neutral as skin color, something that is a civil rights issue. And so it's raised. Is it? Is homosexual rights an issue that has to do with morality, with what is right and what is wrong? Or is it just a matter of the way that we're born and the choices, it just doesn't have to do with the standard of right. Is it what is really happening inside of me? Now, in saying that, I want to make it really clear. I believe that in Christ, there can be healing and there can be wholeness. And I want to really stress for, for anyone that might hold different views about morality, I believe that it's only as we come to Christ. But I want you to begin to focus about the tremendous conflict that's taking place in our culture, the abortion issue. In other words, there are very strong, just no way the two viewpoints can come together. One viewpoint says that to take the life of a developing little baby in the womb is murder. It's wrong. It's sinful. Another group says no. It is an issue of individual freedom that our country was founded upon that a government doesn't have the right to tell me what I can do with my body. And so on one hand, we have an issue where people are saying it's murder, and another group is saying, no, it's not murder. It is an issue of individual freedom. And the debate continues and it flares. In fact, the debate has gotten so strong, the debate has become so strong that right now there's very strong feelings. Even when I talk to you about it, there's an opinion of let's not bring it up. You see, whenever there are hard, tumultuous decisions that must be made about right and wrong, there's strong tendencies to want to run away from that, to get away from it. And so even the political campaign has boiled down to the economy. And that's a painful issue, isn't it? It's a lot easier to talk about money than it is to talk about morality. Now what I want to do is not deal with those individual issues. Although as we go through our study of the Word of God, we will definitely interact about some of those issues from the Word of God. I want to go to a much deeper issue. It's the issue of how do you decide what is right and what is wrong? How do you decide 
whether this code of ethics is right or whether this code of ethics is right. How do you go about doing that? And there's tremendous differences taking place in our society over what is the foundation of deciding what is right and what is wrong. Our country was founded a couple hundred years ago and more. And there was a prevalent view. It was the dominant view. Not everyone was a born-again believer by any matter of means. Not everybody that signed the Declaration of Independence would stand up and they would say, I believe Jesus Christ is my Savior. I would challenge all the students and all of you to go back and just read the writings of some of those that signed the Declaration of Independence that were involved in the Constitutional Convention and you're going to find out one thing that they absolutely agreed upon. And that was the fact that there were ten words, there were ten commandments that all of government and all of personal life and all of family life were to be built upon. And the reason those ten words, as the Hebrew text calls them, the ten declared words, the reason those words were so important is because... They believed that on a rugged mountain, a historical mountain, a mountain that you can go and visit down in the southern Sinai Peninsula, that on that mountain an incredible thing happened. The almighty God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, a personal God as well, someone who could speak and who could think and who could feel and who could decide, that God who is the great majestic creator chose to speak. And our country was created and founded by a group of people that strongly believed that on Mount Sinai, God in heaven said the ten words. And right was conformity to what he said and wrong was turning away from what he said. You see, we lived back in those days, society felt because of a strong Christian Judeo heritage that you didn't decide in your own heart what was right and what was wrong. God's Word decided it. God's Word was the standard. And those Ten Commandments could be put up in school, they could be put up in government buildings because it was believed this is a divine revelation from God. Now as I sit here today, most of you would join me and say, yes, I really believe that. Amen. You'll shout, amen, that's what I believe. Only most of you are too shy to do it. But I want you to understand there's a tremendous shift today. And it's very important to understand it because it's much bigger than a political campaign. It's much bigger than just sociological issues. It has to do with your personal life with the Savior. Because I want you to begin to think about a very important idea. What you believe about Mount Sinai will ultimately determine what you believe about Mount Calvary. If you reject Mount Sinai, if you turn away from Mount Sinai, then there's no need for Mount Calvary. And you could easily be lost forever and ever and ever. My older brother was talking with Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher. Dr. Schaeffer said, Don, what do you want? John 3.16 or Genesis 1-12? through 12? My brother said, obviously, Dr. Schaeffer, I want John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Dr. Schaeffer said, Don, if you choose Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 1-12 through 12, and really Genesis through Deuteronomy, 
Genesis through Malachi. If you lose Genesis through Malachi, there's no need for John 3.16. And we're in a society where our little kids play with toys, gruesome little figures that talk about the use of forces and the use of, of using meditation techniques, the invasion from the East. And what are we thinking about there? Well, there isn't an ultimate personal God that decides right and wrong. There's just a force. There's really no such thing as right and wrong. It's all just one. Because who cares about an ultimate it? You see, if there's an ultimate force in the sky, that force can't think, feel, or decide, could care less about what these little ants on planet Earth are doing. Right and wrong doesn't mean anything. And that's where we're at. In other words, you school teachers wrestle with that every single day of the week. There was a day when, when I went to school where school teachers could pray. School teachers could teach us the Ten Commandments. Some of you, some of our older kids, write a testimony of what it means to believe in Jesus. And a teacher might say, what does it have to do with anything? Don't ever do that in a public school class. That's heavy. This sounds very familiar, only I used to pray for my friends that were facing governments that were restricting their religious beliefs. I used to pray that there would be freedom. But now we're the ones, and praise God that there still are many, many teachers that believe in the Lord Jesus, and, or at least call for a free discussion. But I want you to see that the ropes are tightening. Now you can say, well, Dave, what do I do about it? Well, you can get really angry, you can get really upset. But what we want to do is we want to go back and ask ourselves, what do we believe? What's our standard? And basically what's happened, you see, in, the, in Germany... In Germany at the beginning of the 20th century, a powerful thing began to happen. And they started to hit away, especially at Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they began to say, this is not the word of Moses. They noticed there was some editorial activity. And we're going to find out, I'll give that. I think there is some inspired editorial activity. I think it gives us great insight into how to make the text applicable even for our own day. The Old Testament itself says that there were, there were scribes that ministered in courts like Hezekiah and like Josiah. But the modern critical approach that began to invade Germany was hitting a lot deeper than that. They were saying there never really was a historical Moses who saw God face to face. It's just the folk ideas. It's just the folk ideas of a brilliant Jewish people who had a genius for religious thinking. And the, the, the argument started to go like this. This is not the word of God through Moses. This is the, the folk tales and the folk ideas and the folk wisdom of the Jewish people. And therefore, we can study it for interest, but it no longer needs to hold authority over our lives. When these Israelites come up with an idea that it might not be a good idea to steal... That's something we can think about it, we can ponder it. But we don't have to hold that we need to obey it, especially in, in a lot of different situations. And so the Germans began to say, this is not the Word of God. And it dominated the universities. The German universities just went into this hook, line, and sinker. And they started to teach it very powerfully and very strongly. It went deeper than that. Eventually, they jettisoned the idea that Genesis to Deuteronomy was the inspired word of God. 
and they began to move in, we are the ones that hear the voice of God within. We hear God's voice as we study. We hear God's voice as we move into a higher culture. We hear God's voice in ourselves, not in the Holy Word of God. Now, lest you think that that's not an important shift, I want you to think very deeply about what happened. There was a young, brilliant politician with a great voice and a great oratory that in the midst of all this foment where the German theological schools were, were declaring Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, there is the Yahwist, there is the Elohist, there is the priestly source, there is the Deuteronomistic historian, J.E.P.D. All these different sources came together as the German universities were teaching that. There was a young voice that rose up and said, the Germans are the next step in evolution. The Germans are the ones that need to lead humanity because we hear the voice of God not in the pages of sacred scripture. We hear the voice in the German consciousness. We hear the voice of God in culture. And it is our duty to stand against all those who oppose that. And that, that Fuhrer was elected and became the person that you know as Hitler. And many religionists gathered around him and bolstered his authoritative position. There was a young Reformed pastor named Niemöller that stood up and said, No! No! There's the Holy Word of God. It says, Thou shalt not murder. It says, Thou shalt not steal. It says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And Niemöller went in for a personal, personal time with Hitler. He says, I can't believe what you're saying. He says the church must be independent from government when it comes to obedience to the moral standards of God. And we must care for the people. We must be able to teach the people. And Hitler said, no, we will take care of the people. You just worry about whether they go to heaven or not. Don't worry about right and wrong. And Niemöller is the famous Christian that wrote, when they came for the communists, I never said anything because I wasn't a communist. When they came for the Jewish tradesmen, I didn't say anything because I wasn't a Jewish tradesman. When they came for the Jewish professors, I never said anything because I wasn't a Jewish professor. When they came for my fellow believers, and when they came for me, no one said anything because everyone was gone. And Niemöller, who said to Hitler, Moses did speak on Mount Sinai. And that is a standard that even the highest governing officials in the world must bow before. Niemöller spent most of the war in a concentration camp. What I want you to realize, brothers and sisters, we are a group of Americans who lose historical perspective. We are teetering on very climactic times. And it has to do with this issue of who decides what is right. What I want you to realize is you open the pages of Deuteronomy today, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 1, you're hit in the face with this issue. What we've been leading to is the introductory statement of the book of Deuteronomy. I want you to look at it very, very close, closely. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. And it says, these are the words of Moses. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of Jordan. 
That is the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hasarath, and Disahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount, si- by the Mount Seir Road. That's one of those verses that if you were having your quiet time, you would say, what's the big deal about those verses? You'd almost fall asleep. But it hits you in the face right from the beginning. These are the words which Moses spoke. Look at verse 5. Moses began to expound this law. This book that we're going to begin to study is not just a legal code book. It's not just like tablets of stone that just have ten isolated words on that. Moses is actually going to lay the foundation of our moral lives. He's going to lay the foundation of how how families can pull together. He's going to lay the foundation of how a government is instituted. You might not realize it, but those that framed the Constitution of the United States used the ideas of Deuteronomy, which had tremendous stress upon individual concern for one another and a control of those who were ruling by a written document. The book of Deuteronomy, way back in the times of Moses, says the kings just can't do what they please. They must write out the words of the Constitution, the law of God. They must write out the words of Deuteronomy and they must live obedient to that. That was an incredibly creative, unique idea in the ancient world. And it wasn't just a human idea. It was revealed by the inspiration of God. And so we're hit in the very beginning with this question. What do I believe about the source of Deuteronomy? Now the small children that are here, in Sunday school, they learned. Moses went up and talked with God in Mount Sinai, and, and that's where the law was given, and, and Moses came down. And now we have, 40 years later, Moses has gathered these two million people together. They're poised, all those place names. And notice how specific he is. All those place names tell us that he's in Transjordan, probably up on the flat area before you plunge into this gigantic rift valley and go across the Jordan River by Jericho and then up into the Promised Land. And just before this nation goes in to take possession of the Promised Land, Moses says, now I'm going to repeat the law. That's where Deuteronomy, nomos means law, deutero means second. This is not a second law differing from the first, but it's more like a repetition of the law, an explained law to know how to apply what we learned in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai, how we apply that in the promised land. Now I want you to see something very clearly. How many of you, based upon what I've just read to you, let me read it again. These are the words of Moses, spoke to all of Israel. And then it names the places. And then in verse 5 it says, Moses began to expound this law, saying, turn over to the end of the book, near the very end. I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 22. So Moses wrote down this song that day and taught it to the Israelites. As you read further, if you look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, and let me just read that for you, verse 3. It says, Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commandments, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. I want to move over into the New Testament and listen to the words of our Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, verse 7. And here the Lord Jesus said, Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give a his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus replied, Moses, who, tell me, 
Jesus speaking, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. If you look at uh, Luke chapter 24, after the Lord had risen from the dead, Luke chapter 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is the Lord Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. In the book of John, John 1.17 says, for the law came through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus Christ said this, has not Moses given you the law? Now coming through, and I don't want, I'm not trying to just cause your mind to get you know, all confused, but I want you to think about the thrust of the Old Testament witness and the New Testament witness, culminating very specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. Children, based upon what I've just read to you, who gave us the book of Deuteronomy? Who's the human author of the book of Deuteronomy? Moses is. Over and over again it claims that. And it says these are the words which God gave to Moses. I want you to think hard about this. You say, Dave, are there some difficult questions? Yes, there are. There are editorial additions that bring out the meaning of the text, I believe, even more profoundly. There are some questions that the critical scholars, even themselves, have brought up that are very, very helpful. But you say, Dave, why do you believe? Why do you believe that God actually appeared at Mount Sinai? Why do you believe that the Almighty God in heaven actually spoke to Moses? Because there's only one person I know that's ever lived that's been in the deepest recesses of the universe, and he knows what's there. There's only one individual that I know that's ever gone into the deepest and most tiniest corners of, of reality into microspace, and he's been there. There's only one person I know that's ever been as deep into hell as you can go and as far into heaven as you can go. There's only one human being that I think that can really tell me the truth in this short journey that I have on planet Earth, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth believed that Moses was the spokesman of God that delivered the holy written word of God to us. Is that important? Yes, it is. It's very important. As hard as it might seem, it really doesn't make any difference what the editor of Murphy Brown believes about right and wrong. And I'll make it even worse. You know, it doesn't make a blatted difference what Dave Wurtzen believes about right and wrong. You see, your opinion and my opinion don't really, really mean a thing. You're not going to stand before Murphy Brown or me or anybody else. One day you're going to stand before a righteous, holy God. And I want you to know we're going to find out that righteous, holy God really cares about you. He cares enough about you to not leave the issue of right and wrong just up to your particular fancy. Does it make a difference? It makes a lot of difference. Thou shalt not steal makes a lot of difference about protecting our property. Thou shalt not commit adultery makes a lot of difference about our families. Thou shalt not. When God says it, it's real important to listen. If you jettison the thou shalt not to the book of Deuteronomy, then you'll never know what it means for the just 
righteous conviction of God to change your heart, to grip your heart. What the law of God does for me is it drives me to my knees and says, Lord, I confess that I have sinned. And that opens the marvelous doorway that Deuteronomy itself speaks about for my Savior to say, David, I'm glad you found the point of the law and you faced the truth that you have sinned. And I've got tremendous good news for you. I already took the penalty of the law. The wages of sin is death. I've paid it. Open your heart to me and I'll give you a new life and I'll transform you. You see, I believe that that message of the gospel is coming upon deaf ears in our society because we feel there's no need for it. Because we haven't gone back and thought about the righteous, holy law of God. We're going to begin studying the book of Deuteronomy. I'd like you to begin to read it. We might want you to think deeply together about the authorship of the book and what you believe about it. What we're going to find out is this is an incredible insight into how we can build our personal lives through the grace of God on what is right. How we can build our families on what is right. How we can build our church family on what is right. How we can ultimately join our families together and build a nation upon what is right and long for the day when the Savior of right will come back to institute His reign of righteousness upon this planet that desperately needs to have.